son, Benjamin. And in the meantime, I'm going to keep one of you in prison here, and that was Simeon. Well, at that point, it didn't look too good for them. And the sons and Reuben all make this statement. First, they said one to another, we are barely guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben, who was the firstborn, the older, the one who acted when the father wasn't present, Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear? Therefore also, behold, his blood is required. Both the sons, the other nine, and Reuben, recognized that this was divine retribution. They had done wrong. When they saw Joseph coming, whom they hated, they wanted to uh, kill him. Reuben talked them out of that, put him down in a hole. He was going to come back later and take him out of the pit, send him back home. But while he was gone, here came some Ishmaelite slave dealers, and they sold him, and he was taken down into Egypt. That's, you know, the rest of the story. Reuben said, Sin not against the child, and you would not hear. Well, as parents, there are times when we sin against our children. Maybe as grandparents, we do the same. I'd like for us to think about some of the ways that we could sin against the child. There are a number of ways, but I'll just kind of limit it to three different areas. One way is by failing to discipline our children. Now, discipline carries different ideas. There's the idea of instruction, correction, training, physical punishment. But we're going to look at both of these ideas, but first let's look at the physical punishment idea first. When we turn over to Proverbs 23, Solomon gives us some instructions about how we should deal with our children when they need discipline. He says in uh, Proverbs 22 and 15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Then in chapter 23, verses 13 and 14, Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beat him with the rod, he will not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Also in 29, 15, and 17. Thy rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself causeth shame to his mother. Correct thy son, and he will give thee rest. Yea, he will give delight unto thy soul. One other is found in chapter 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, that is, diligently. We sin against the child when we do not teach them obedience. 
But we don't teach them respect for authority. And this has to begin in the home. The authority of the parents. Parents are to be obeyed. Children have to learn that. If they don't learn it in the home, how are they going to respond to authority when they get outside and go to school? When they come to Bible classes, what about the teachers? What about civil authorities such as the police or other agencies of our government? What about divine authority? They need to be obedient and respect authority and obey it. We think about divine authority. God has ordained that there be elders in congregations. And those who are in that congregation should be in subjection to the elders. They have the rule of the congregation. What about the word of God? John Calvin made the statement that we ought to have the same reverence for the word of God, the Bible, that we have for God. And that's true, is it not? How can a person say, well, now, I, I respect God. I know there's a superior being, and uh, I'm, I'm fearful of him. I, I stand in awe before him. But the Bible, you know, that's, that's something else. Well, the Bible proves itself to be the word of God. And if we have respect for God, we're going to have respect for what he says in the Bible. And so children need to be taught obedience to authority. And this, as we said, begins in the home. Preacher had some business with the man, went to his home. They were sitting there together talking over the matter. The boy came in, the son of the father, and turned on the television. The father said, no, we're talking. We don't want the television on now. He turned it off. The son reached over and turned it back on. The father turned over and turned it off again. He said, now, we don't want the television on now. The son reached over and turned it back on again. That's the third time. father turned it off and he said, now, I'm going to whip you if you don't quit this. The son turned it on again. Off, on, went on six different times. He never did whip the son. He did an injustice to the son. Discipline. They need to be disciplined so they can learn obedience. And if they don't learn obedience, they're going to lose their soul in hell. That's how important it is. If they don't learn obedience, they're going to lose their soul in hell. Disobedience will never go to heaven. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, referring to Jesus, says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made the author of eternal salvation, no, I'm, I, I lost my, track of my memory right there. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect by the things which he suffered, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And so obedience is absolutely necessary. And every age needs to learn how to be obedient. Titus 3 and 1. Titus was a preacher, one of Paul's co-workers. He left Titus in Crete, and he's writing him, telling him what to do. And he says in chapter 3 and 1, Put them in mind to be in subjection to the rulers. 
to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready unto every good work. And so this is a part of the gospel. We are to be obedient to the authorities, to the rulers, we're to, to obey. And also Ephesians 6 and 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So the Bible teaches that we are to train our children and we're to discipline them when necessary. And we need to be consistent. Everybody recognizes that. Child needs to know just what the limits are, how far he can go, because he's going to go as far as parents will let him go. But he needs to know how far that is and what's going to happen when he goes beyond that limitation. No one has a right to bring a child into the world and then neglect his training and through neglect send that child to hell. I don't know if I've got my facts straight, but I believe you told the ladies about <clears throat> when you were looking after, I don't know, it was your children or your grandchildren, and they were running out in the street. And you were getting them out of the street. I don't know if you had a rod or your hand or what, but the police stopped. And the police says, uh, woman, don't you know you can go to jail for that? said, well, I'd rather go to jail for this than to see one of them killed. You know, you'd think of all the people who would want parents to discipline their children, it ought to be the police, because that just gives them more work when children are not obedient. So she did the right thing. <clears throat> James Dobson has a book, I think he calls it Dr. Dobson answers your questions about raising children. Here's a little paragraph. Our Heavenly Father is a God of unlimited love, and our children must become acquainted with His mercy and tenderness through our own love toward them. But our Lord is also the possessor of majestic authority. The universe... <clears throat> is ordered by the Supreme Lord who requires obedience from his children and has warned them that the wages of sin is death. Now notice this last sentence. To show our little ones love without authority is as serious a distortion of God's nature as to reveal an iron-fisted authority without love. And so the two go together. Uh, the authority and the love. So we can sin against our children when we do not physically discipline, discipline them when necessary. Another way we can sin against our children, and maybe you won't agree with this fully, <clears throat> but that is by giving them too much in material possessions. We all want our children, our grandchildren to be happy. So we give them something that makes them happy. And we're thinking now, if I give them something else, they'll be even happier. And then something else and happier than that, but it doesn't work that way, does it? <clears throat> Economists talk about this expression. <clears throat> you reach a point of diminishing returns. You know, it builds up and it builds up, but there's a point when it starts going the other way. And that's true when we start giving things to children. They're children. 
<clears throat> this can only lead to boredom. I mean, you know, they got so much now, what's another gift? Children need a challenge just like everybody else. And what challenge do they receive today if all they have to do is ask for something? Okay, we'll get that. Let's get in the car and go get it. Or I'm going to town tomorrow, I'll get it then. Or John Clayton, he's a Christian, teaches high school in Indiana. And John says that some of his students receive a $50 a week allowance. Can you believe that? I mean, I can't. I, I believe the man's telling the truth. <laughs> it's just hard to conceive of parents giving a child $50 every week. Now, maybe if they required them to do all the grocery buying, that might be all right. But that's not the way it generally works. When children are given too many things, several things happen, and they're all bad. They love they lose, for one thing, the joy of anticipation. I wonder if our younger children ever experience that joy of just frigid anticipation. The almost unbearable pleasure pain of waiting and hoping and dreaming and, and praying and wondering whether or not that long-sought object will ever arrive. A man who was born toward the beginning of this century, and the times, they are changing. Times today aren't like they were then, and this illustration brings this out. His family lived in a small town in Ohio. He had one brother, so there were just the two brothers. He tells about a time when he went through this process of just, oh, he just couldn't hardly wait. He and his brother longed for a bicycle. Not one for each brother, but just one to share, to use together. Two bicycles, that is, one for each one, was beyond their wildest dreams. Just one would do. But this represented a serious outlay of money for that little family. One day, they were told that they might be able to have a bicycle. Nobody knew when, and so they waited, and they hoped, and they prayed, and they dreamed. Months went by, and the months seemed like years to these two boys. One day they were told, the bicycle is coming. Now, it was a second-hand bicycle, to be sure, but it was a real, honest-to-goodness, two-wheeler bicycle. And when the time for the train, they didn't have a store big enough in that town to sell bicycles, so it was coming by train. And so for the time when that bicycle was going to arrive on the train, these two boys ran to the railroad station, trembling with anticipation. He remembered how his heart pounded as that train came rolling into the, the station. He said it was a wonder that he didn't faint when he saw the crate with the bicycle in it taken off of that train. You talk about excitement. What modern American child is likely to experience such a thrill? We're holding something from our children when they don't experience that kind of excitement. When they have this and that and about everything they want. I don't think that's good. 
The boy who got a wristwatch when he graduated from high school now has a son who wears one to kindergarten. The times, they are changing. One reason for drugs, I think, is this excess money. They've got money enough at least to get started, you know, to experiment. And then they can get hooked and addicted. But they want thrills and they want excitement and they're not getting that from being challenged to work for whatever they need. We can sin against a child by giving them too much. The third example I'll use. We can sin against the child or the children when we fail to teach them, to instruct them, to correct them, to train them in Christian principles. <clears throat> That's the other part of discipline. Deuteronomy, let me read a couple of passages from the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Now this is in preparation for the people who are going to receive the, the Ten Commandment, Mosaical Law, and Covenant. Moses says in verse 2, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of Jehovah thy God which I command you. Now he says, just a few verses later, 8 and 9, And what great nation is there that hath statutes and ordinances so righteous as all this law? which I set before you this day. Israel was blessed above all other nations. God was dealing with them and giving them the best law. Verse 9. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes saw, lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but make them known unto thy children and thy children's children, grandchildren, God's precepts, God's laws. Chapter 6, let me read a couple of verses. Verses 6 and 7. And these words, still talking about this old covenant law, which I command thee this day shall be under thy heart, upon thy heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shall talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, just all the time. Talk about my commandments, God says, to your children. Now, can we say, and that was from the Old Testament, that God would expect any less from Christian parents? Well, Ephesians 6 and 4 is in the New Testament. It says, fathers, provoke not your children under wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Parents have a responsibility, and this is laid primarily on the father who's the head, about bringing up children in the admonition, the nurture of their children. And of course, we're familiar with Proverbs 22 and 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. What is meant by this train up a child? Well, let me give you an illustration, example. Say you're going to take a, a group of boys and teach them how to play baseball. So you get them all together and you get the baseball book out and you read the baseball rules, the rules of the game of baseball to them. 
and for several days you go over and you go over them. They understand the rules now. Now you take them out on a field where there are four bases. You give them a ball and a bat and some gloves, and then you say, okay, go to it. How good do you think they're going to play baseball? They know the rules, but they've never practiced. That is a part of training. Knowing the rules and putting them into practice. Being able to apply them. Training includes practice. And as Christian homes, we have those two responsibilities. Teach them the rules and see that they're practiced. Help them to put them into their lives and practice them. Let them see Christianity in action. Give them a Christian example and encourage them to follow it. <clears throat> I think a good way to do this, this is just a suggestion, is to take them with us when we do benevolent work. They can see what's happening. Take them with us when we go to visit the sick. When you ladies go into someone's home that needs a, a food or something done to the house. They need to see Christianity in action. Now, every action we take is motivated by desire. Many times there will be two conflicting desires attempting to motivate us to action. Now, which one of these two do we follow? Well, we know it's a stronger desire. And so parents have a responsibility of instilling within their children this stronger desire to do God's will. To please God rather than to please themselves or even anyone else. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 22 and 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind? Well, he did. Jesus said in Matthew 16 and 24, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That needs to be taught to our children. Our children are what we make them. I think we'll all have to agree to that. Our examples have a great influence on them. For example, a parent may teach his child about the good book. The Bible is the best book in the world. It's a priceless possession. The Word of God. And that we ought to love it above any other book that exists. And then that parent may be seen spending more time reading some other material than the Bible. Whether it's a newspaper, a magazine, or whatever. Children know which one we love the most. Also, <clears throat> we can tell a child how important the church is. That it was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. That salvation is within the church. And when the Lord comes again, he's going to take this, this glorious church unto himself. To heaven. And so we teach the child that you need to be a member of the Lord's family, his church. And you need to support it. Be an active, faithful member. Carrying on the work of the church. And then after that lesson, 
a child sees us sitting before the television instead of attending worship services. Our children are what we make them. Our children are brought into this world sinless. They're, they're pure. They're clean. They may be somewhat selfish. I mean, when they're hungry, they let you know it. When they're just infants, don't they? But as they grow up, we teach them things. We teach them to lie. We can teach them to, to cheat, to gamble, to defraud. And somebody said, well, I wouldn't teach my children any of those things. Well, if we're not careful, we might. A preacher was reached on the telephone, a member of the church, a mother called him, said, I wish you'd come over to my house. Her son had come home from the high school, come home from school, and he had some money, uh, more money than he had, and she wanted to know where that money came from. Finally, he told her, we had a poker game today at high school, and I won it. Well, of course, the mother was concerned, and she was worried, just like any mother would be. And so she called up the preacher and said, Preacher, would you come over and talk with my son? She explained the situation. He went to the home to talk with the young man, and he was looking around for a particular way to bring the conversation around to, to gambling. And he noticed a loving cup sitting up on the mantel. And he just supposed that the son, that belonged to the son, he, he had won it in some athletic contest. And so he asked the boy, he said, uh, is that your loving cup? And the boy said, no. He said, my mother won that last week playing bridge at the bridge club. Well, the preacher excused the boy and called the mother in and talked with her. Where do you think he learned to gamble? But this was just a little loving cup. She might have responded. And the preacher could have said, but this is just a few dollars. The son has too. There are people who would say, spend a, a quarter to play cards or to play bingo. They wouldn't spend a dollar. Somewhere between a quarter and a dollar, it turns from entertainment to gambling. And the gambling, they think, is all right. I mean, the, the entertainment part, but not gambling. I've known men who go deer hunting whenever it's deer season. And what they'll do, they'll all, each one, put a dollar in the pot. And whoever gets the first deer gets the pot. Well, isn't that gambling? Well, they wouldn't do it for $25. One dollar's enough. That's just entertainment. Who changed the principle? What principle has been changed? The only change is the amount that's being gambled for. The principle is still the same. What about raffle tickets? A Georgia lottery. I mean, this is gambling. It doesn't matter about the good cause. The Bible plainly teaches that the end does not justify the means. So even though it makes uh, for better education, that does not excuse gambling. And I don't know what the gambling uh, lottery tickets cost, uh, but still gambling. You're putting money in to get something more. And there's a risk that's involved. Training of our children must begin early. 
so that when they reach a certain age that temptations come, they, have, they will be conditioned to turn from the temptation. They will know it's wrong, and they will have a stronger desire to do God's will than their own will. Educators tell us that during the first six years of a child's life, attitudes are formed. Attitudes that a child will have toward God, toward his fellow man, even toward himself. But in the next six years, his habits are formed, and these depend upon his attitudes. Attitudes in the first six years, the next six years, habits come. And then from the years of, say, 12 to 18, those habits crystallize into character. And character is the only thing that we can take out of this world that we did not bring in. Starts with attitudes, habits, character. Therefore, it is imperative that we start early in training our children. We want them to all to become Christians and to live a faithful Christian life. We sing a song of invitation after each lesson. And that's what we're going to do now. If you're subject to the gospel, if you've never surrendered to the Lord, confessing your faith, repenting of your sins, being buried with him in baptism for the remission of those sins, we have a song to encourage you to do that at this time. If you're subject to the gospel anyway, won't you come as together we stand and sing? <laughs>